0: Today we have our first ever return guest, Peter Jesperson. Peter just wrote a book called Euphoric Recall, which will be available soon, and I've absolutely loved it. The book covers all of the many facets of Peter's amazing career in music. He's helped manage bands like The Replacements, had a brief stint tour managing R.E.M., he helped run a store called Orfolk Jokopus. Minneapolis, which was legendary, uh, hosted some incredible in-store performances, some of the first uh, chances that a lot of the locals got to hear some really great music as Peter is a noteworthy tastemaker amongst many other things. Uh, It's just great chatting with him again, he was an excellent guest the first time and I knew he would be the perfect fit for our first return guest. Thanks for coming on the show, Peter. I think you guys are going to love this. And please, do yourself a favor and pick up a copy of Euphoric Recall whenever you get a chance. Thanks, guys. So, um, man, uh, first off, you're our first ever return guest. We've, uh, I think, we're, you'll be our maybe our 86th or 85th guest total, but we've never done a return guest. And uh, I know back, and it's been a long time since we chatted, but it, when we did speak, I remember feeling really uh, great about how the conversation went. So I'm really excited to have you on for our first return guest, man.
1: I I felt the same. I thought we had a great conversation. It flowed easily, and uh, you know, felt very you know conversational
0: yeah that's definitely the goal and uh thank you so much for sending me uh that advanced copy of the book I've uh made my way through a pretty good chunk of it I think I've got about uh maybe a third left or so um I was trying to plow through it this week had to, had to travel and play some music this week so it was uh it was it was unfortunate to not be able to spend even more time with it because I will tell you man I was uh reading it on the couch and you know, just kind of lost in it and turned over to my wife and was just like, this is so well written. I mean, I'm already, uh, you know, I was interested before I cracked it open, but I was, it was a, definitely a hard one to close. I hated having anything else to get to this week because I really just wanted to spend time with it. That means a lot to me. Thank you very much, Dylan. Yeah. And I will tell you, man, uh, you know, as the cover of the book states, you know, you're, you're a you're, Kind of have dabbled in a lot of things, but the tastemaker side is still strong. I I, the, I think one of the reasons that I was struggling to get through the whole thing this week is that I feel like every few pages there was something else mentioned musically that made me go down a wormhole where I put the book down and pulled up, uh, you know, YouTube links or whatever uh, to check out whatever music you were um putting me onto, which was one of the most uh, appealing parts of the read so far. but um,
1: I hope you find some things that, uh, you know, stick with you.
0: Oh, they have already, man. I've been uh, sending links to friends to a few things that I definitely want to pick your brain about in a minute. But uh, I think, you know, just to kind of start at a logical point here, um, kind of curious when you, you know, I'm sure this is a question you've been asked a bunch, but like when did this book idea first kind of start coming around. What was the uh, catalyst there for you?
1: Well, I guess I, I would say, uh, honestly, it was funny that uh, for several years, I've had people saying, God, you've done so many crazy, interesting things in the music business, you should write a book. And I always thought, yeah, you and me and you know 15 other people would be interested, uh, kind of thing. And, um, and also, I work. Um, I love to work. I work all the time. I'm often working more than uh, one project or one job at a time. And and so it just was one of those things they kept, oh, maybe someday, maybe someday. And then I left New West Records in 2016. I'd been there for 17 years and um, they were doing some restructuring. I wasn't expecting it, I, uh, but, um, but it actually worked out well. I, I enjoyed the freedom. And uh, so about two years after I'd left and I was working freelance and really enjoying myself, I got an email from a gentleman who said, would you be interested in writing a memoir for our publisher? And that was, uh, of course, a big moment. I really, it really made me stop in my tracks to um, have an actual publisher offer me a deal. And um, so it took me a little bit. I kind of lurched back and forth between, yes, I can do this and who am I kidding? I can't write a book kind of thing. And so basically, I uh, had to clear my desk because I thought if I'm going to write, I'm going to put everything I got into it. And I want to sit down every day and write for my job, so to speak, like I want to w- write eight to five or whatever. And so that's what I did. And over the course of the time, um, the publisher I was talking to was they were great. We had a uh, they helped me really put together the best outline for the book that I could have had. And and then over the course of time, it was just kind of a loose arrangement. They weren't, you know, being real uh, uh, aggressive about putting a paper you know a contract on the table and then I had another publisher contact me and say, hey we hear you might be working on a book do you have a publisher? suddenly I had two people kind of interested and I was uh, I, I I did it fairly I didn't do anything behind anybody's back and and uh, the two publishers negotiated and and uh, the second one actually uh, had a deal that just had some points in it I thought were a little bit better and so I ended up jumping ship with the blessing of the first publisher probably a longer answer than uh you needed there but uh that's how it no, started no. in 2018 um uh or uh, you know the offer came in 2018 by 2019 i was pretty committed to the project and um so then i just wrote for four years basically
0: that's awesome man. and no i don't uh i don't mind the long answer at all i'm very curious about how, how these things are actually uh i think people like kind of like a little bit of a behind the scenes because you know a lot of a lot of the listeners will certainly not have had a book published that's no uh small feat and it's definitely a lot of curiosities into how that mechanism works but um i guess you know obviously the book covers so much ground i mean i i loved reading about uh you know especially your earliest music gigs you know working for the theater uh I had no idea that you were uh, distributing NME in the Twin Cities there for a little while. That was really awesome to to read about. And then, you know, obviously you go on to Orfolk, Jokopus, the music store and founding Twin Tone, uh, tour managing, et cetera. Um, and I guess uh, what I want to know is, did you, you know, there's so much, I guess, uh either you have the sharpest memory of anyone I've ever met or you've kept some really good journal. (laughs) So I'm kind of curious how the, what the, you know, the title suggests the recall, uh, kind of what that process of digging up those memories was like for you. Like they seem so fresh in your mind, uh, at least how they translate onto the page.
1: Well, I, I guess, uh, I, you know, I really, I, I, um, I've always really seen the world through a musical prism and I've dated things in my life by what record was out when. I, I, it's one of the standard ways of me remembering things somehow. So I, I guess that has something to do with it. Um, the, you know Just because the, the, the records were so important to me, I can really pinpoint certain times in my life according to a song on the radio or an album that I just got, or knowing uh, that I bought after the gold rush by Neil Young, the day it hit the record stores in 1970 or whatever it was. Um, So I, I, and and, and it's funny to hear somebody say you have such a clear memory because I feel like I have a lot of holes in my memory. So maybe the way I wrote it covered up the fact that there's big (laughs) chunks I don't remember very well. And, and I think also part of the process was talking to people. One of the things my wife said uh, during the the course of this was she said, I've really enjoyed hearing you talking to people that you hadn't talked to for 30, 40 years and reconnecting with these people. And so in some cases, other people filled in holes where I couldn't remember specifically or I had misremembered. Uh, but there are just things that that I have absolute vivid uh memories i can picture where i was uh when something happened and and so i'm just maybe that's uh, something i'm lucky about which is funny because i mean i clearly uh you know didn't take good care of my uh myself in some ways with substance abuse and so often that affects people's memory but there are some things i just remember super specifically and on the other hand there are some things that other people remember very specifically that i don't remember at all so (laughs) It's a it's a funny thing. i mentioned this uh, when I was talking to somebody the other day. I remember when I was about 18 or 19, I got on a kick with a Spanish film director, Louis Bunuel. I don't know if you've ever heard uh, of him or seen any of his films. <clears throat> he most famously worked on a 12 minute film in the late 20s, around 1930, maybe with Salvador Dali. It was called mm-hmm. Andalusian Dog, and one of the most memorable scenes in it is that they actually take a razor blade and slit an eyeball. <laughs> it's a very difficult thing to watch. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, it was a surrealist, you know, Dada movement um, film. Anyway, long story short, Louis Bunuel wrote an autobiography in his 70s, and the first chapter was called Memory, and he talked about his memory having been affected so greatly uh, and he actually made a statement that horrified me as a late teen. Uh, He said, uh, losing your memory makes it uh, feel like you almost haven't lived at all. And Mm. I remember that just scared the daylights out of me at the time. Uh, I'm I'm certainly not at that point. I'm not, uh, uh, but, uh, but nonetheless, it's, it's something that I've thought about all my life and, and watched how memory can become spottier and spottier as you get older. So.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I, I feel like, um, you know, one way or another, I, this book's served kind of so many different uh, decades of your life as a little bit of a archiving process. And, you know, uh, I guess on top of all of your various uh, and, you know, fluctuating job titles that you could basically be considered a part-time historian now as well. So, uh
1: well that's yeah i guess you could uh and i think um i think uh yeah it's just it's um it's a funny thing to 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 do in one's life and i think one of the miraculous things about the book offer is it landed in my lap at a time when i could actually consider doing it and i was ready to kind of look back and reflect and i was in a position financially to take less work and commit myself to writing so it was just it it was a a a combination of things that allowed me to do this at this time in my life
0: well i uh i think that there's a lot of music lovers out there that are going to be uh thankful that you found the time and the resources for it because i'm telling you man i I, there's a lot of aspects of the story of your story that you know i was familiar with obviously we've spoken in the past i've uh you know your mentioned uh quite extensively in bob's book trouble boys and uh you know there's just a lot of material out there that kind of touches on your you know your story your career path and all of that but there's just so much to this that is uh expanded on and hasn't been touched on and uh that i feel like was uh you know it all feels like a story worth telling and it it kind of has illuminated a lot of aspects of the various groups that you've worked with and uh, just your creative outlets, et cetera, that otherwise uh, hadn't quite been illuminated. So it's been a really, really fun read. I'm, I mean, after we get off this call, I'm planning to sit down and read it some more and try to finish the rest of this thing, man. Fantastic.
1: Um, I appreciate
0: it. You know, uh, there's a ton of stuff I want to pick your brain about. Um, I think, uh, you know, Thanks for indulging me a bit on the logistics of the book itself. Um, Were there, you know, I guess, were there moments when you were making this where you felt like, um, I guess, uh, trying to think of the best way to put it, like, were there areas that you wanted to focus on? that you felt that you in particular felt like hadn't been covered as, uh, as much as you'd like in the in various other publications and things, you know, I feel like for instance, for me, I, I had known that you'd worked with REM, but I hadn't heard a whole lot about it. So that whole chapter was super fun. Were there aspects of the book or, or, uh, eras of your career and life that you were most excited to kind of get to write about?
1: I think there were a lot of things that I, I mean, I, I, I was, uh, You know, there were chunks uh, of my life that were so uh, uh, just active and fruitful. Uh, The the working at the record store was just an amazing experience to be there for a decade. And that was really my, you know, I'd done the NME thing, as you mentioned, uh, for a few months there when I was just coming out of high, high school. But then to get the job at Orfolk uh less than a year after i'd graduated and to stay there for 10 years was uh it was like my college really and i wouldn't trade it for anything in the world i I, and if i look back on um you know the work that i've done i think the time at orfolk was maybe maybe where i was um uh I, I was best at what I did, and and maybe some uh, the 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 job that I liked the best. Um, so I really liked coloring in a lot of the Or folk stuff because, it, you know, we've said it a million times, and it feels like a cliche, but it was so much more than a record store. It really was a clubhouse for music fanatics and. We had such a dedicated clientele and the people who worked there were so devoted to the store and the cause and the, uh, you know, the position that we found ourselves in, how lucky we were to be able to, you know, have a podium to rave about our favorite records and to have it make an impact on the people who shopped at our store. There were really people who would just walk in and say, what should I be listening to this week? And we'd have 10 or 20 things that we were crazy about that week. And we'd play one after another and they'd pick the one they liked. And sometimes they'd take it home and it'd be their favorite record. Other times maybe it wouldn't last, but you know, we did it uh, the best we could. So I think Orfolk was uh, one place where I really, really was glad to to fill in a little bit f- more of the story uh, and to give people credit. There was a, it was such a great team of people, Vern Sandin who owned the store Uh, You know, it was it was such an important uh, time in my life uh, for him to offer me that job Uh, really put me on my path in a a way and gave me the experience. To, you know, step out into the real record business after that, we were pretty sheltered there. It was a a little cocoon. Orfolk was like a little cocoon um, where we were like protected by uh the fact that we had a successful store and we were all making pretty good money and we were doing something we loved it was uh, just an amazing experience but I guess uh, really all I I I had to sit down and think about what what do I want to write about I have to write about the record store I have to write about the record label I have to write about the bar that we all hung out at the punk rock place the longhorn where I was a DJ and whatnot um uh and and uh I, you know, finding the replacements, working with R.E.M., moving on to New West Records in the early, um, in the in the late 90s, that sort of thing. They were all, I guess I wouldn't say there was one in particular that I felt most strongly about. I really enjoyed uh, writing about all of it. Um, uh, having said that, uh, I, I, like I said a minute ago, Orfolk was probably uh, where I felt the most qualified to be doing what I was doing.
0: Yeah, and I, I mean you know obviously orfolk for me is is something that's is this legendary place that I never got to experience but I'm so glad that there's a, a you know fairly you know between your book and Bob's book and just various other sources there's a lot of um documentation of that era but this book I thought uh one of the most exciting parts which I I believe Bob touched maybe on or maybe I just had seen a photo of a uh, uh you know david from new york dolls in uh in the shop a while back and just kind of got my mind spiraling but hearing you expand on the you know especially what you're saying about it so much more than a uh than a record store being kind of like a club those events and you describing them they sounded incredible whether it be uh david popping into the store or uh, I believe you mentioned talking heads and Ramones and all of these and Blondie and all of these, yeah. just incredible acts in their you know, absolutely in their prime. Um, and you know, you and your peers at the shop having a constant ear to the ground and a finger on the pulse, uh, kind of oftentimes being, you know, whether it be through imports or what it might be, uh, over time being sometimes people's first uh you know entry point to to some artists that might not be available in other stores and things like that um i guess you know the 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 thing that i'm curious about is you know i know by no means uh is minneapolis a small town but the ship that you've made because you're currently in los angeles correct i am
1: north hollywood
0: so i'm curious about the juxtaposition there a little bit you know uh even though Minneapolis is by no means a small town, uh, the way you describe the like world that's centered around Orfolk and the Longhorn, it it almost has this the, though it may not be a small town, it has a very communal feel to it. Um, whereas I feel like Los Angeles is notoriously, you know, about as big as it gets. Uh and uh I'm not saying there isn't a sense of community there, but it has to feel like a much different Style of that, um, and I, I'm curious because I know that you you mentioned going to the Echo with your son, and you know I feel like you're still out and about and going to rock clubs, and uh, just kind of curious how the the two um, locations kind of compare in your mind in terms of your experience in both cities.
1: Well, I think in in Minneapolis, uh, uh, you know, the Twin Cities in general, I think has always been a great arts town. Uh, from fine art to dance, to theater, to music, whatever. And so we had a leg up there. Uh, We were in a welcoming community of uh, people who cared about art. And so that was, and, and I think one of the other things that I always like to point out about the Twin Cities is that, you know, having had the good fortune to travel around a lot in my life and see a lot of other music scenes, One of the things I'm most proud of about the Twin Cities is that it really embraced all different kinds of the arts and all different kinds of music. At Orfolk, uh, we weren't just a new wave store or a punk rock store. Uh, We were just a a store that was all about great music of any type. And at the time, when I first started in 73, of course, it was the disco years. And... um, we uh we we loved a lot of the disco music i mean i still have uh, you know hundreds of i have thousands of 45s actually but i mean i have i have many many disco 45s by people that i love from donna summer to george mcrae to kc and the sunshine band i mean i thought there were a lot of great pop records even though i wasn't a person who danced or cared much about whether or not a track was danceable or not and, um, so we were just, we're very broad-minded there. And, and, and that's something I appreciate when you compare it to Los Angeles, of course, uh, when I moved here, I mean, I moved here for two reasons, one for a girl and we're married. And, and, uh, in fact, I think on the, just a couple of days, it'll be the 30th anniversary of the day we met. Um, and, uh, we've been married for 20, 28 years, 20, no, 20, 20, it'll, the next year will be our 24th anniversary anyway. Um, so we, um. Uh, so I moved here for a girl, but I also moved here for work because, uh, we had our label twin tone and we had had an offer from a West coast, uh, LA based company called restless records, uh, who were a company that were interested in purchasing catalogs from other independent labels around the country. And they went on an exploration, uh, journey to different places. I know they went to DC for instance, and talked to the people at discord and uh, they maybe went up to Seattle and talked to Sub Pop. I'm not sure really all the places they went, but they came to Twin Tone and talked about buying our back catalog. And we said, well, we didn't want to sell it, but we would be willing to license it on a basis where any record that they didn't keep in print would revert back to my partner and I, uh, my Twin Tone partner and I. So uh that also they uh, wanted me to come to la to introduce some of the records i was working on to the la staff and and you know do an in-person kind of uh you know uh, explanation of what was upcoming and i got to really like it out here uh when i first traveled here with the replacements I, i came out in the fall of Eighty-three uh, was the first time we came to the West Coast, and we didn't like it here at all. In fact, we referred to L.A. as the armpit of America, <laughs> and uh, it was so. I mean, you've been to L.A. I imagine it's it's the city that never ends. It's just enormous, and so um, we couldn't. It was hard to figure out how to get from one place to another, and and trying to go, you know, ten miles. You know, could take you an hour sometimes in LA traffic. So, um, you know, there are those things to to consider. But at the same time, I think wherever you live, you become part of a community if you are involved in a. I don't want to say niche, but in a uh, very specific area of a business and what i was in was the more artistic side of rock and roll i suppose you would say and my job really for all my life has really been to help people make records that's kind of the long and the short of it i mean i've done other things as well of course and uh related to that but but that's mostly what i've done so i ended up um coming out here and finding a community even in this gigantic metropolis um and I love LA. Uh, I I learned to love LA. I should say uh, we didn't like it at first, but when I started coming out here, started seeing it through rose-colored glasses because of the girl I fell in love with. Uh, I also had uh, just the you know how dazzling it can be to be in Los Angeles when you're a kid from the Midwest. Uh, you know we can. You know, I live in North Hollywood, but if I want to be in the mountains, I can be there in 45 minutes. If I want to be at the ocean, I can be there in an hour. If I want to be in the desert, I can be there in an hour kind of thing. It's really a, <clears throat> a wonderful place to be. And, of course, we always joke about it. My wife and I are big Supergrass fans. It's like we're in L.A., and then Supergrass come to America. Sometimes they only play in New York and L.A., and that we we got to be in one of the cities where Supergrass play, or we'd be spending all our money traveling to see them. Oh, so,
0: as a music lover, I mean you you can pretty well count that uh that your home base is now going to be a tour stop on most artists' tours. So uh <laughs> that's convenient to say the least. And and honestly, you know, Los Angeles is interesting. I feel like, you know, the traffic discussion is all is often brought up, but I don't know if I've just had good luck, but I feel like most of the time when I'm there, I don't find it nearly as hard to navigate as, as New York City. New York City seems like if you if you miss your exit. You're gonna be late, like for sure, like by a long, like by 45 minutes to an hour probably. Whereas, I feel like maybe it's just because LA has like a thousand little microcosms. You can kind of, uh, you know, whether you're uh, depending on, there's just these big sections that feel like small cities into themselves, whether it's Los Feliz or Highland Park or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So you kind of can find your little. Almost small town within your big city. Uh, yeah. To, uh, over and over again. If you get tired of one, you can relocate. Yeah. Uh, but and uh, you know, I guess speaking of you know, it's interesting hearing you talk about how records being released. You know To backtrack a little bit over time has uh, been like kind of your your bookmarks for like how you uh, identify and remember certain eras of your life, and it, it reminds me of uh, my wife's grandfather is the same way, whereas like. Uh, he very much so uh categorizes areas of his life based off of what car he was driving. So I feel like anytime I would ask him a story, he recently passed, but when I asked him a story about, you know, uh, what were you doing? Or, you know, tell me about this job you had back then. He's like, well, I was driving this car. And it's like always was the first thing. And it's just like, I could see the gears turning. And it's just like one thing, Remembering that, then you remember what you might remember what you were listening to in that car and who you were with. And it just kind of like it's a good uh that's a trigger. good yeah, good trigger for memory there. I, I I like that. And I like that every a lot a lot of people's are different. Uh it has to do with your passions. You know, obviously he was a big car guy, you're a big music lover, so it makes perfect sense, but it's still uh fascinating nonetheless. Um and what, you know, speaking of, you know, I I think similarly uh to you, I I definitely think about eras based off of what music was coming out then and sometimes it's just like it doesn't even compute like in my brain I think about I guess because you know the replacements as a touch point are for me they've just never seemed locked into the actual era that they were uh primarily active in like a lot of times I think about what else was coming out at the same time and I'm like it just doesn't even like to think that uh, you know the Smiths or the cure or various things that just feel that I love as well a uh, passionate fan of but just don't feel they they just don't feel like of the same time and place obviously not the same place because they're uh UK versus the states but definitely uh at, at many points of the same time uh so it's just interesting to think about well you know especially with the replacements just got, they just feel ahead of their time in so many ways. They feel to me, and I'm sure you've heard many people say this, but they feel almost like they, they very much so feel like they informed a lot that came in the nineties, but a lot of times they just feel set apart from their peers in a, in a, in a lot of ways. Uh, they don't feel very influenced by, uh, maybe popular music at the time. Uh, and I guess maybe that has a lot to do with their, uh, I think in a lot of ways, it seems like they were looking back in terms of the things that were inspiring them. But then they're just having their own, you know, musically uh, listening to a lot of older things, uh, older rock and roll and just kind of doing their take on it. Um, but, you know, I guess there's there's things that were there's artists and bands that were active uh, kind of simultaneously with the replacements that I'm kind of curious whether you got you, I'm sure you were tuned into it because I feel like you, you kind of were hip to a lot of things, but, you know, speaking of LA versus Minneapolis, like were you, your your peers and the replacements and people, were y'all tuned in to like SST records, for example, and, you know, the minute meant, obviously Husker do would have been a good uh, connecting point to that, but were you and your peers inspired or listening to much of the rest of the catalog of bands like that, uh, your, you know, West Coast kind of punk adjacent bands?
1: Absolutely. I You know, we, we carried all that stuff at our store and sold them by the boxfuls, uh, things like the SST records and uh, just general punk rock in general. I think that, again, we uh i think about say in 1977 when so you know kind of ground zero year zero for punk rock in a lot of ways or when things really exploded i think you know our suicide commandos were 75 and and the ramones were 75 but most things kind of really sex pistols were 76 their first record but 77 is when it really exploded and i think that uh uh Like, for instance, uh, we loved, uh, you know, the first Clash album. But that same year, uh, McCartney had his band Wings and they put out an album called London Town, which is one of the biggest records ever made. And it's one of my personal favorites and some of his most beautiful singing. So our store, we could be playing the Clash and then we could be going into London Town and we played everything in between. So I think that that was uh, while we... Listen to a lot of that stuff. We were never, uh, we were always, and I guess I said that before. It was, it was always a very broad musical palette that we drew from there at Orfolk, and I think that, um, you know, when you talk about the replacements, for instance, and them not sounding of their time, I think, well, f- number one, they were always outsiders. They never really fit in with anybody else, uh, although they fraternized and were friendly with lots of bands. I mean, who's could wasn't a band that I I, I guess there's one qualifier I would make about the punk rock thing is that I love punk rock, but I didn't love hardcore. And when the, when the punk rock bands, a lot of the West coast stuff became very hardcore oriented. It was about speed and it was about, uh, you know, I suppose a, a certain amount of anger uh right. and whatnot and, and the punk rock that we had brewing in minneapolis was was more on the ramones side of things more like uh we called it kind of comic book punk it was it was not the angry stuff of anarchy in the uk or uh pretty vacant or that kind of stuff it was uh it was uh beat on the brad and it was
0: uh or customer uh, you know something that's customer, a little bit more yeah. lighthearted in nature you know
1: exactly so um and i think that the other thing about the replacements that you have to acknowledge is that they were really magpies they really liked a whole lot of different stuff that were the different tastes of the band members uh when uh you know, before Westerberg came along, they were doing um, a lot of, you know, Johnny Winter. And uh, they they were doing, uh, famously, they used to do Roundabout by Yes, but they were all hopped up on speed. So they play it at a million miles an hour. So mm-hmm. it sounded like a punk rock band doing prog rock and that sort of stuff. So when Westerberg came, there was actually a funny moment in those really early days when he was getting familiar with the band where they were like going don't try to sneak any of that punk rock stuff in on <laughs> us you know like paul was like trying to pollute them somehow or whatever but um so i think that uh, they they really Uh, that's one of the things that maybe I was attracted to and maybe they were attracted to me because of it was, there were no boundaries. There were no rules about what you had to do. And I think that we, we spelled that out pretty early when we were making the first record. Sorry, Ma, it was all, all the songs that Paul had brought in in those early days were rockers until he brought in a song called Johnny's going to die one day after we'd all gone to see the band gang war, uh, the band with the, wayne kramer and johnny thunders in it and and uh it was actually a pretty terrible show to be honest thunders was messed up uh maybe didn't have enough or had too much of whatever it was that he was doing heroin i suppose um but anyway paul wrote this song johnny's gonna die that was the first ballad that was a big deal and um and Then when we started talking about putting the album out, I said, I think that the best way for a band to establish themselves is prior to the album, you put out a single from the album with the A side from the album, the B side, not from the album to make it tantalizing. And I put it in a nice picture sleeve. It's a great way to launch a career and say, you know, here we are. And so while we were deciding on what to do, uh we 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 all kind of landed on the song i'm in trouble from the recording sessions that we've been working on as as the a side and then around i don't know 10 months 11 months after i met them westerberg started sneaking me solo acoustic songs and solo piano songs some electric guitar too uh and i said to him at one point when we were putting the idea of the single uh you know at the top of our list of things to do i said boy it would really be cool if you want to do one of those solo songs for the b-side it would show uh, you know a, 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 that you were not a one-trick pony kind of thing but he was very sensitive i didn't want he said that ain't the replacements peter i don't think that's right and bob stinson especially the lead guitar player wouldn't want some wimpy acoustic song on the flip of their rock and a side and I didn't think that was a, an argument I was going to win, frankly, but I kept at it in a politely persistent way. I kept saying, I don't know, this really is going to show you guys to be broader than a lot of the bands. It's going gonna, it's gonna to make you stand out from the loud, loud Fast Brigade. And finally, when Paul agreed to uh, really think about it, he brought a song in called If Only You Were Lonely. And I just think that that was a just an incredible way to for a first record to have i'm in trouble and if only you were lonely it was i don't think there were a lot of bands there were really were no none of the punk rock bands were doing tender acoustic ballads uh on the flip side of their singles at, at least in in my experience so i think that that's um that's that's one of the things that made the replacement stand out is that really it was anything goes they weren't shy about the fact that you know westerberg loved top 40 radio And he wanted to be on the radio so when he would i i I can't tell you the number of times i drove in the van with him and 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 paul's riding shotgun and he's a button pusher he was always looking for the song that was going to get him off you know and uh and so you know he embraced all that stuff too you know from their look if you look at their set list from back in the day they did so many covers that were really, really fun from like Love Goes Where My Rosemary Goes or uh, Hitch and a Ride by Vanity Fair. Or, uh, you know, even even them taking I remember uh, I wrote about this in the book where uh, all of a sudden one day they decided they, decided they at, at practice they learned walk around. the" uh, I mean, rock around the clock. And I thought, you know, that's kind of a square old rock and roll song. Uh, and, and yet they did it. When they did it, they just gave it new life, and they did it in a way that was, it was, I mean, they just, it was a storming version that they did, just a stomper, and it was for a while there, when they first started doing it, it was probably the best song of the set for a few weeks there. It was awesome. So they just, again, they embraced everything, and that made them, I think, stand out at the time, and it also made them stand the test of time.
0: Absolutely. And I, I think that exact uh, point, the the Magpie uh, eclectic sense of taste uh, that they had, and yourself as well, uh, that's the reason that bands like Minutemen and other bands are interesting counterpoints in my mind, because to me, they were similarly, they didn't sound like these hardcore, punk, aggressive, macho, if anything, they sounded like, you know, kind of funky and wore their classic rock love on their sleeve whether I mean you know whether it be from the flannel uh you know commitment to the flannel look or the uh I mean uh the CCR covers that come in the later uh Minutemen records and even the you know bands that I think you know um you know of the 90s so like like pavement uh for instance they people think of them as these like you know rightfully so as these indie rock troubadours but Huge CCR fans as well, not afraid to tell you that they love uh, classic, some classic rock. And if anything, they – uh forget what the name of the song is. that They cover this one CCR song on uh, Jules Holland or something like that. And it's just – like you said, they breathe this new life into it. And you're like, I never – like, I've always loved CCR. But when you hear it in this thing, it's like you realize just like it's – you've heard it so many times you can almost take it for granted at times. And then you can kind of hear it repackaged similar to you with a uh, rock around the clock where you're like, actually this song is deserved the hype that it had back then. And it, it almost took somebody reimagining it a little bit for me to realize, uh, just how great of a tune it is. You know, it gets a little bit, you know, when you hear something a thousand times, you, it's, it's very easy to have it lose its luster a little bit, uh, thankfully ccr has not lost any luster for me i could listen yeah. to the original recordings and think they're just as badass but uh but hearing someone like pavement do that cover uh it's just like incredible sounding. just to hear uh, a band that you think of as uh not a classic rock band in a lot of ways
1: uh yeah well when, and when i say rock around the clock was kind of a square record it really is is you know uh, it's not like it's a bad song it was just so conservatively recorded right. and if you look at it at the time and you compare it to something like a little richard record you a know, little richard is really what we were excited about but the fact that the replacements heard something in rock around the clock that they could dress up in replacements fashion and make it really a powerful rocker it's uh you know it it was it was very canny move on their part i think and also just to go back to one thing you said about them not sounding like anybody else that was around at the time i would actually disagree in one way uh respectfully that uh when i first met them it was like they wanted to be johnny thunder's heartbreakers that was what they were in fact the first time i saw them they did three johnny thunder songs in the set which is I thought that's not a great move when, you know, somebody from a record label is there to come see you to do three songs by one artist. But I I kind of made me chuckle. I thought, well, why not? Johnny Thunders. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You're going to if you're going to go for one thing, might as well. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right there. I guess in a lot of ways, they just don't uh, they stand apart from a lot of their, uh, you know, the more popular music of that era uh, or maybe not more popular if you think about a grand scheme of things. But like, when I think of your, the cure or the, or the Smiths, there's a lot of bands that were gaining popularity in a similar uh, kind of niche way, uh, you know, maybe not top 40, but definitely, or even REM, you know, like, I feel like they're, they they do not sound too, too similar. You know, there's points where there might be some crossovers, Um, but yes, uh, there are some, uh, some musical touch points that you brought to my attention in particular that make me think of them. Like when I listen to those suicide commandos records, I can definitely like hear some musical crossover, especially on like the sorry ma era. Um, You know, just kind of, it feels like there's also there's maybe, maybe I'm uh, you know, reaching here, but it seems like there's some specific like Minneapolis uh, specific uh qualities that i can hear carried out through a lot of these bands that though they all have very unique sounds there's like there's a few little you know small things you can pinpoint that i'm like okay this you might hear this in a husker do song or a replacement song or a suicide commandos although there'll be a very different take on it but there's just a couple maybe it'll be like a musical phrase or something that there's some um i don't know if they're intentional nods but there's just like things that there's definitely the influences on each other seem to be there but i could be a like a thread yes exactly a
1: connecting thread yeah i see what you mean i mean and it's probably easier for you to to hear that than it is for me who was in it but you know i'm 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 uh, i'm happy to hear you say that
0: yeah i mean i think it's natural i mean i i'm in south carolina uh and i've been in the music scene here you know for quite a long time and you know there's a lot of bands that i think of as uniquely their own sonically but then there may be this band that comes out that in no way reminds me of this other band except for there's this one thing this one part and one song where i'm like i feel like they might have been listening to our friends junior astronomers up in charlotte or something you know like not in a bad way in a way that's kind of like uh exciting to be like well it's like it feels insular and like uh like the scene is informing itself in some ways, like people are taking some cues from each other in exciting ways.
1: No, it's like the folk music tradition. You know, music really is, uh, you, you know, something that's passed around and, and affects people in, you know, ways. I, I think that, you know, we've become such a global musical world. It's it, I, I kind of miss the regionality uh, that there was back in the day where, you know, sometimes we'll be talking about a song that was a big hit record on the billboard charts. And then I'll say, but I don't remember that being played heavily in Minneapolis in 1964 or whatever it was. That doesn't happen anymore. Now when a song is big, it's big, you know, kind of all over the world. Um, And I I guess that's kind of, in some ways, I suppose there's advantages to it and, and disadvantages at the same time.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm a late bloomer to embracing the streaming world. Like I just started paying for a streaming service for the first time. And as much as you want to, I mean, there's so many things that you can pick apart about it. Obviously, like, you know, I'm a bit of a, I would say, like, for better or worse, I can be a little bit of a Luddite sometimes. But uh, I will say, say though, you know, for instance, when I was reading the chapter about the uh, REM years, I was like, you know, it's been a minute since I've thrown Murmur on. I put it on while I was reading. It was just, it was a... you know, same device. The computer was where I was reading the book and listening to it. I was like, oh, this. in some ways it's uh made, if you're an avid music fan, it certainly makes consumption pretty easy. Um, But I think at the same time, you know, I guess you, from friends of mine who've had it for longer, like I was telling a friend the other day, I was like, I know this sounds crazy, but I can listen to almost anything, anytime. And they're like, yeah, we've all been doing that for 15 years. I was like, oh, it's new to me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a crazy feeling. But they like trust me it's cool at first but then you realize later on you almost kind of take it for granted and you miss having to pull a record sleeve out and do the you know the tradition um but uh and the the
1: other thing about streaming is that it's just so unfair in terms of its payment to the artists and the fact that no doubt you know daniel eck is a billionaire and the artists that he has made his money off of are are struggling to survive is just uh it it's inexcusable it's it's uh uh, it's 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 got to get fixed.
0: Yep, I would say that that was a huge contributor to me not being in any rush to get uh, hip to the streaming. Um, I think, you know, that being said, I try to, you know, use it, enjoy it, but not let it discourage me in any way from buying something that's actually going to put something in the pocket of the artist. You know, whether it be, you know, I would say. It's almost you you're buying whatever you can to support them, but really, uh, you know, nothing beats catching a band live and hitting the merch table after that's about as direct to, um, you know, creator as it gets, uh, in multiple ways, you know, obviously they love people being a touring artist myself. There's nothing better than, uh, that one-on-one connection that you can make with somebody. You're not going to, uh, find anything that kind of scratches the itch better than that. And certainly, uh, on, a Financial level and otherwise, you can't. There's there's no middleman to try to get hit You know, people are going off about Bandcamp being bought by a big corporation lately, and uh you know, Bandcamp is. I I feel like I've never strongly disliked it, but I feel like it, the the thing that no one ever talked about is that Bandcamp never pays for streams either. You know, what I mean, they don't pay anything for for any streaming. So they're, they're not, they were never a perfect platform either. I mean, the, the streaming world, you know, I, I think they've been historically a bit more considerate in terms of what they offered as a platform for merch distribution, maybe. But uh I've just never heard anyone talk, you know, there's so much conversation around Spotify pays so little, Apple Music pays so little. And I'm to me, not to just be like uh finding another bone to pick, but I was like, have we not why don't we ever discuss the fact that Bandcamp pays nothing for streaming? There's no right. streaming payout at all on there, which they, the app and website does encourage people. Like if you stream and stream and stream, it will give you like, Hey, you've listened to this a lot. It's probably about time to pony it. Like they'll give, send you a message, which I think is something, but you know, it's just an imperfect perfect world all around in terms of a uh, artist payout from all of those, which, um, you know but the, they
1: do have that, you know, pay what you can afford on a lot of their things as well. That's true. Uh, you know or, or this track will cost you three dollars, but if you can pay more, and I' off, almost always do that. I'll pay mm-hmm. if I you know whatever. So I think I, I there's a benevolence to what Bandcamp did, I think in some ways where they're trying to be uh, this idyllic sort of music company where, hey, here's the music, uh, you can listen to it but if you don't pay for it, we're not necessarily going to be around forever. It's kind of trying to, Yeah. but, but I, I think you're absolutely right. I think that there should be some kind of a, a wall there where you, you can only listen to a song a couple of times before you have to.
0: Um, now that being said, they do give uh, the artist. It's kind of up to their discretion. Like you can set it up where none of them are streamable and all it is, is just, you can see the track titles yeah. and there's an order link. Yeah. So, uh, whereas Spotify and other ones, that's not an option. It's either on there or not on there. So I'll give them credit where credit is due and that uh, if an artist really wanted to push back on that, there's options for them to kind of curate to their liking. You're Um, right. Good point. But uh, anyways, all that being said, you know, uh, it's been a joy re-listening to a lot of the music that you uh, have kind of been, you know, been in your little, your ever evolving world and, I think we have a lot of musical taste in common, but uh, there's a lot of stuff that you've brought to my attention that I hadn't experienced. Like, uh, you know, similarly as uh, I'm by no means original in this, but I'm also a Beatles fan, as you might be shocked to hear. Um, <laughs> but I had never heard of the McGear record uh, from Paul's brother Mike, uh, and it—I think you put it well and that it very well could be one of the best. Uh, post-Beatles, Beatle-adjacent records. It's incredibly well-produced, thanks to, in no small part, to Paul, and just a, a really interesting record, and sort of, I don't know how I've never heard of it before, but it, that's. Yeah. I think that's one of the reasons that I uh, haven't, that I've been moving slowly through the book, is that there's so many things like that. As soon as you said that, I was like, well, I'm here. I am distracted. I'm about to listen to this whole album, and I loved it, and sent it to all of my other like heavily Beatles influenced friends. Um, but you know, it's just awesome that you know you you may not be working in a record shop anymore, but you're still finding creative ways to to be that uh, classic pacemaker that you are. <laughs> <clears throat>
1: I've always got a new favorite record or a new favorite song or artist or whatever. I don't know how that happens, but it's just been a constant in my life.
0: Well, that one was really interesting for me. I hadn't heard of that, uh, that flexi disc, uh, that came out as a promo for exile from the Rolling Stones. Uh, so that was really fun. Uh, and, you know, I spent a lot of time with the chronic town EP, but I hadn't really listened to the the single proper, um, I mean, I guess I'd heard the single version of Radio for Europe, but I hadn't heard the B side, so that was fun to go and, uh, you know, to our the Spotify overlords' credit, they had it right there, convenient for me, so I didn't have to yeah. go crepe digging. But you know, uh, maybe it, it will inspire me to go on Discogs and try to find the actual uh, hard copy too. But uh, yeah, you know, on in terms of more maybe more current artists that I uh, am really excited that we were both uh, big fans of, I know you're a huge uh, supporter and advocate for uh, Daniel Romano and all of his projects. And I could not agree more, um, had the luxury and pleasure of playing with him in Greenville, South Carolina. Uh, I want to say maybe just, maybe just before the pandemic hit um, and just absolutely love his music. And Juliana uh, Rialino who plays in the band, I mean, goodness gracious like <laughs> her record the most recent one in particular is it all blue i think yeah. uh holy cow so yep, I good i love that I, record as we is, like to
1: say nobody nobody nobody's ever going to accuse juliana uh, riolino of not loving her job no you
0: know, she is an, a passionate vocalist uh yeah. what are they uh nickname her the white hot lung i feel like that is that yeah. couldn't be more appropriate but they have a a certain quality to you know both acts um that I just feel like is, is refreshing. You know, it's like kind of, they have this take on being a live band that feels uh, like a little throwback and, but in a delightful way and that they just feel like a, uh, they're thriving on being this, these road warrior uh, just really pack a punch live band, which you know, of course there's plenty of bands out there who are hitting the road hard, but there's something about their approach that I can't quite put my finger on that just feels uh like it maybe has gotten a little bit not completely lost in time, but just isn't uh something that I see quite as often and it's uh and they're just absolutely nailing it, you know. Um I don't know, maybe it's something about the water in Canada, but it's hitting different for me. <laughs>
1: I I think Daniel Romano is a real extraordinary human being and an extraordinary talent. I think that 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 uh, those people that are in that band know how lucky they are to be playing in a unit that Daniel is uh, the commander of. He's just uh, a force of nature. And and you know, the amount of music he made, like through the pandemic is just ridiculous. I, I, it's, it's it's laugh. really, it makes me laugh, but all of it's so good in different ways from doing a 24 minute song with what's the guy from tool to doing, uh, his uh, country record to doing, uh, you know, spider, what do they call it? Spider bite. I think is another side band of his. I did just have such a weird variety of stuff. He's, I, 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 I find his, um, Everything about Daniel is just really astonishing to me. He he, uh, and and we've gotten to be good friends. They stay here when they come through town. It's always a pleasure to to you know spend time with them and to find out. Yeah, you know, he's he, you know he'll be out here touring on an album, and he's already got three more in the can. You know, it's just unbelievable. absolutely.
0: I'm gonna actually while I while I'm thinking about it, I'm gonna search this uh this song of his that I believe, and maybe you could correct me. I'm trying to, I'm just searching it so that I can get the title right. But there's this one song of his that years and years ago. Okay. Uh, It kind of makes me think similarly to how you, you know, you think of Paul's writing and the, the, I don't want to say two sides of the coin. Cause if anything, there's way more than two sides of Paul's coin, but you know, like your, um your advice on that I'm in trouble paired with, If Only You Were Lonely. I think that there's something to be said about that, you know, in my brain, that's that's exactly what makes me love his songwriting is that he can just absolutely nail one thing and make you want to go out and write a barn stomp and burn rocker of a tune. But then you hear If Only You Were Lonely and you're like, you feel like you got to rethink your whole life. You're like, maybe I should be going down this rabbit hole. But this one Daniel Romano song that I've heard, it's called Maybe It's Me. Have you ever heard that song?
1: Uh, I'm I'm. But what record is it from?
0: That's what I'm saying. I don't think he's ever released it on a record. And I was gonna pick your brain to see if maybe it slipped through. I'm not sure I know it. I'll send you a link after this. But all I've ever seen is, uh, from what I'm looking at it right now on YouTube, there's a performance, uh, like a video session from nine years ago of a song called Maybe It's Me. That was the first thing I ever heard from him, and every record he's put out. I've, you know, and I, it's, you know, he puts it so prolific that it's very possible that it slipped by me and I could be putting my foot in my mouth. But uh, I for for the longest time after I heard it, every record that came out, I was like looking for that track list. Like, <laughs> I wonder if it's on this one. And I've just never, and it is an incredible song. I, I mean, can't wait to hear it. It's in some ways, it's a, there's part of me that wants there to be an album version, but there's also this mystique of like, how is this not an album That makes it almost even better to me you know like i know just i know just what you mean maybe he either he doesn't like it as much as i do or maybe it's maybe it's a can't hardly wait situation where it's hard to find the right studio version of it over time you know maybe it's uh maybe there's versions of maybe there's been one recorded on for every record session and they just haven't found the one yet who knows uh Maybe that's a conversation I should have with him if I can get him on the pod one day. But like, I'll, I'll definitely send it to you because I'm curious your thoughts on it. But I, that has been my uh, constant question for him as a songwriter ever since I heard it. Because it's just like, it's a really moving song. And it doesn't really, uh, you know, it kind of is a, uh, an outlier a little bit. Um, I feel like, you know, obviously he has, it's, it's a little bit more of the country persuasion, which he obviously has no problem dabbling in but it's still even within his take on that feels um unique in a lot of ways um but yeah i'm curious after this you have to let me know what you think of it but uh
1: I, I will and i think he'd love to do your show and with your deep knowledge of his music i i know he'd have fun talking to you he's uh he's a little bit i i find when i try to get specific about you know a song like here's this unreleased song that i love sometimes he can be a little um cryptic in his answers in a very Dylanish sort of way so sometimes you can't really get to the heart of the matter with Daniel because he's he, he sets up I don't know if they're protective walls or whatever it is, but uh, anyway, that's kind of an interesting thing. And and I just thought I want to throw something else out. Um, you know, the Daniel Romano thing was was uh, I really became just obsessed and went practically on a mission. It was almost like an, you know, Daniel Romano evangelist kind of thing. Um, but I I, I ran into another band recently that I would just want to uh you know put the bug in your ear called Gold Star, and okay. they're L.A. based. It's a kid who was born in Vienna, but raised in LA, uh, went to art school in London. He's got a very broad background. Um, but I, he, and, and I had started hearing his music as early as 2009 when he was under another name called the Sister Ruby Band. Uh, But anyway, his mother was a publicist, is a publicist. I'm not sure if she still is or not. But anyway, was a publicist in L.A. and sent me his music early on. And I tried to get the New West folks interested in it. And I couldn't get their attention. And then I was not in A&R anymore at New West. And so I was busy doing other things that I kind of lost track of Gold Star. But my boy, my son, who's 21 years old now, came to me five, six months ago and said, Dad, I found this really great new band called Gold Star. And it made me laugh. I thought, wow, geez, I thought maybe they'd broken up or the guy had moved away or whatever. But, uh, but anyway, we started listening to them again. And and we saw two live shows uh, just coincidentally they were playing. They don't play often enough, uh, but we saw them play. And it was uh, almost a Daniel Romano experience. That's uh, that thing where you just how can this not be a global phenomenon? Right. It's so great. So if you get a chance to look at four albums on Gold on uh, Bandcamp, just under the name Gold Star, and they're just absolutely brilliant. I said to somebody, I was talking to Chuck Prophet. I don't know if you listen to him at all. He's a good old friend. And we did some records together at New West. But I was saying to Chuck, uh, I would say he's he's somewhere in between. um, uh, It's like he writes... uh, uh, he he has the kind of the dark majesty of a group like The Only Ones, but then he can write these really catchy rockers like Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. And there's so, it's a really nice uh, hybrid of some things that I hadn't quite heard before. So mm. I highly recommend Gold Star.
0: Absolutely. Well, Peter, I, I don't want to keep you too much longer, but there's, um you know, a few uh, small points I wanted to hit on with you. Um, You know, obviously... This is a bit of a new endeavor for you going into the world of a you know a published book like this. Is is there a part of you that uh, wants to continue down this road? Are there other things that you'd like to write about? Um, how how are you feeling? You know, obviously it's not out yet, so you there's a lot to come as far as uh you know the emotional roller coaster of putting a, a book out. But now that I mean you put a pin in the actual writing, it's it's a finished product. You know, um, how how are you feeling? in terms of uh, you feeling inspired to continue down this road or?
1: I am. And and I actually just yesterday finished reading it for the first time in book form, um, rereading it. And uh, I, you know, of course, anything that you are involved in the creation of, when you look at it, to some extent, you only see the flaws or the things you wish you'd uh, made better. Um, so there's a lot of that, but generally speaking, I'm pretty happy with it. But I will say one thing: I was in the in the process of writing a book. Obviously, one of the key components is having a good editor, and I had a really good editor. Um, although we didn't see eye to eye on a lot of things, and at some point, when you're disagreeing. <clears throat> excuse me in any in any work that you do you come to a point where you think i've got to pick my battles i can't just say no 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 i've got to say yes to some things i've got to compromise um and there are some things that i wish i hadn't compromised on now after the fact and um i don't know if you've ever done any writing i was i'm new to consciousness but uh when I really dove into the writing, I completely forgot about the word count that I had contracted for. (laughs) And I just wrote and wrote and wrote. And when I turned in the manuscript a year ago, right about now, actually, uh, I had written 163,000 words Mm -hmm. and the editor kicked it back to me right away saying, Peter, I don't have the bandwidth to edit a 163,000 word document. You are contracted for 75,000 words you've got to cut this in half. And I just, I thought my head was going to explode here. I'd worked so hard to build this thing. And I knew lots of it had to be taken out, but I thought that's what an editor does. They look at it and say, this section could come out. This section could move here. This section could be condensed. This section could be removed altogether. It's not advancing the storyline or whatever, but I didn't realize that he was just going to say, you got to chop half of this out it was really like a sobering moment and really i i i had been writing so hard and when i turned it in i really thought okay now i'm gonna have a breather while the editor looks at this manuscript and instead three hours later he said you got to keep working on it and yeah. it, took me, it was it was very uh i i don't know how to really describe it i i, I wouldn't say it was depressing but it was
0: it had to be a little disheartening because uh, it was a- rethink the whole approach basically
1: exactly so anyway i tried to play ball with the editor as best i could uh and some places i have absolutely stood my ground when he said this should go i would say nope it's got to stay and it was my book and he always gave me the the right of way there but um when i look at the book now i do think it's too short and so i think that um i had one thing Uh, that I had meant to include in the book, which were little vignettes that would fall in between chapters. And they would be things where they would be maybe not following the arc of the storyline so much, but they would just be sort of random things like, and I mentioned them at the end of the book in the epilogue, Um, you know, I didn't get a chance to talk about this. I didn't get a chance to talk about that, but there were things like, you know, speaking of Paul McCartney, I got to meet Paul McCartney at the Capitol records tower in 1989 and i actually spent about 10 minutes with him talking in in a in a real human sort of way which i don't think get very many people get to do because he's really a little bit on automatic pilot when he's meeting people he's done it you know for so many years you couldn't help but build that into yeah. your your uh your preservation
0: a little bit almost to a certain exactly point,
1: yeah. but but anyway that was a great story and i thought well that would work as a good vignette or you know we had a thing in minneapolis where uh i i had gotten the first lucinda or the not the first but the the rough trade lucinda williams record the first one that really uh circulated you know she had done two with folkways originally that were very under lots of people's radar certainly under mine but when she did that album for rough trade in 1988 i just went bananas and a guy from a local club in minneapolis happened to pop into my apartment when i was just freaking out over the record and he said you know he was uh, he ran the big club first avenue in minneapolis And he said, I want to do something that's going to shake Minneapolis up. I got to do something that's going to really make people, you know, realize what a great, you know, welcoming room we have there at First Avenue. And I said, Steve, you got to book this woman, Lucinda Williams. She's going to be bigger than Bonnie Raitt, I said. Mm -hmm. And he said, Peter, if you can find her, I'll buy her a plane ticket. So we worked out this thing where occasionally we would find an artist that wasn't necessarily on tour offer them a plane ticket to come in for a one-off show and we'd blow the roof off the joint we did it with Ted Hawkins we did it with Lucinda we did it with uh Freedy Johnston we did it with Alex Chilton Mark Geitzel we really had a fun time doing it that would be a nice thing to put in these little vignettes so maybe maybe the next thing I do is pull together all these vignettes I'd had about I had about 40 in my list of things to write, and I probably finished writing about 17 of them, so you know, I'm, I'm kind of already partly part down that road, so that could happen at some point. I love uh,
0: that as an idea, it feels but... like almost like the uh, uh, not to just uh make the obvious point of uh, you know, comparison being that you're uh, you're such a record head, but it's like the deluxe edition of the book, you know, like uh. Like well, the, the, yeah, the the, deep, the unreleased deep cuts of uh, of the story. And a lot of them, honestly, from what you're saying, the stuff you're just mentioning about these fly-out appearances and stuff, there's moments of the book where I feel like that would have fit so naturally. So I'm kind of surprised that they were, um, that uh, that the editor uh, leaned towards that. But, you know... Well, like, it, ca-
1: it came down to really practicality. And, and this is one of those things that, you know, I think in art, practicality isn't always the way to go. And that's what I'm thinking about now in retrospect, that I wish I'd stood my ground a little more and made it a longer book. But the point was, he said, Peter, people, the general public doesn't want a long book. And number two, to print a longer book is more expensive. It's going to make the list price go up. It's going to make, you know, whatever. So there were practical points. And I kind of gave in. On those practical points. And now, like I said, I wish I'd said, wait a minute. No, I think I we need to make this. It can't be a 300 page book. It's got to be a 400 page book or whatever.
0: Well, uh, to the, uh, to practicalities, uh, you know, to, to give some credit to that, that approach, I suppose, um, if you are thinking in terms of practicality, you know, if it costs a little less to manufacture this book, Your profit margin is going to go up, which could put more money in your pocket to put towards your next project, whatever that may be. So there's, you know, there's pros and cons. It's a learning experience. And I will say this, uh, though it may be the first, which I highly doubt will be the last just based off of the quality alone, but uh, it does not in any way read like a first written, published release from an author. Like this feel, you feel... To me, you could have told me that you've been writing in this kind of fashion your whole life. It translates perfectly, man. And I think it's because you're a natural conversationalist. You're a natural. Whether you think your memory's spotty at times, I'm the same way. I question my memory a lot, but I feel like you have your own uh, method to the madness for keeping like your keeping the archives uh, up to date in your brain. And it, uh, and whether that be consulting some friends and peers from those times to get, uh, their input, you know, that's just as valid as, you know, uh, any other approach. Um, but I will just say, man, there, I'm, I'm sure that I'm preaching for no reason, but you should definitely be really proud of this, man. It It is an excellent piece of work and I'm not even, I say this knowing full well that I'm not completely through it. I could say it with confidence, you know, uh,
1: that's, that's great. And we're just about to hit the road. I'm actually leaving Thursday and we're uh, Tommy Stinson and I are doing a bunch of co-promotions. He you may know he's got a new group called Cowboys in the Campfire and they have a new album out. And so we're going to do some plugging of his record and my book together. So we start in Seattle on Friday uh, at Easy Street Records. Um, And then he's going to play a show at a winery uh, 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 called uh, Sleight of Hand Cellars. And then the next day we go down to Portland and we're doing a thing at the great record store there, Music Millennium. And then Tommy's going to play at a guitar store. He and his band are going to play at a guitar store called Strum uh, later that evening. And he's going to continue and do a few more dates. I got to come back to L.A. Uh, We do an in-store at a bookstore in L.A. on the 9th of November. And then I go to Minneapolis for a week where, you know, there's going to be a bunch of festivities, my hometown. So it'll be a little... Bigger deal there, I think. And then uh, and then I'm going to meet Tommy again in New York, and uh, we're going to do Philadelphia and Providence, Rhode Island together. So we're just going around. Perfect. and We're going to yap about the book with the local journalist in each town. And uh, one of the great uh, honors of my life was I got David Frick to write the foreword for the book, and he's going to moderate the conversation with Tommy and I and Craig Finn from The Hold Steady in New York at Rough Trade Rockefeller Center on December 6th. I mean, it's really I'm really looking forward to, you know, I love talking with you about this. And I'm not going to find as many people as you who know as much as about music in general as you do. Um, so I, I, I really I I uh, I am very grateful that I get to talk to somebody like you. Um, But I'm also looking forward to talking to other people. I'm going to do a a TV thing for the CBS affiliate in Portland uh, in a couple hours. Uh, Tommy and I are both going to do a Zoom interview with a woman there. And I I get the sense she sounded very cool, very smart. But I get the sense that she's maybe a little bit more of a a, um, a popular culture television interviewer. So she's not going to be a diehard music nut like you are. So that'll be different. And I look forward to that
0: exactly I feel like you're you're used to that you know but back if you take it back to orfolk not everybody who walked into that store was uh you know had that finger on the pulse and that's why people like yourself are so crucial to the world this person who maybe is more of a pop culture uh centered person is has a you know there's even myself who is a, a big music nerd have found so many things through your writing that I hadn't heard about musically ah. and otherwise. So somebody who's not as deep into that is, I mean, yeah, you might be the first reason the first time that they listen to the replacements or whatever it might be that you think, are oh, shocked that they haven't heard that, but yeah, you could still turn somebody onto it, man. And I just can't thank you enough for you've been so kind to me over the years. And, uh, uh, you know, I just, I've, couldn't have asked for a better first return guest and uh i just love chatting with you man
1: likewise thank you very much and you're, you you the work you do and your podcast i mean you have great guests on and i know bob Mayer enjoyed it thoroughly and and so it's all uh, i i'm i'm uh i'm honored to to do it and and thank you very much let's do it again someday
0: absolutely peter and uh next time i'm in your area i'll, I'll hit you up maybe we can get some lunch or something please do Alrighty, I will have Take a great care. one and thank you again.
1: All right, you too.
0: See you later.